And these people who are led astray by these false teachers first compromise what they know to be right in their personal life. They turn a deaf ear to their conscience. They refuse to listen typically to the moral demands of God. And instead of repenting, they persist in their rebellion and they kick their consciences to death so they can no longer hear. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures. A daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a study of 1 Timothy, the first of three pastoral epistles, letters from the Apostle Paul to two pastors, Timothy and Titus. And in our study of chapter 3, we've so far looked at the qualifications of elders and deacons in service to the local church. The Apostle Paul penned these letters to his son in the faith, Timothy, in order to better equip the church, the body of believers. As we reach the end of this chapter, we begin to get a better understanding as to why it is crucial that God's church remain faithful. It is the tendency of sinful man to stray from God's will, and it is a pastor's duty to make sure that his flock remain on the right path. As we continue, we pick up on six truths that are a testimony of the triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as true Christians, we too are called to reflect these truths in our own lives. And these truths are also necessary if we're to be effective ministers in the last day. There are some doctrines that Christians will split hairs over, but they're not doctrines that are essential to salvation or to godly living. But what he reveals here are doctrines that are essential to godly living and to being considered an orthodox, a true Christian. By no means is it a complete list, but it is certainly an essential list. It's our common confession. And Paul gives us, in essence, six truths in chronological order that are a picture of the triumphant career of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, he mentions that a part of our common confession is that Christ was revealed in the flesh. Now, a few manuscripts later on for clarification rendered it God was revealed in the flesh. And that is certainly true because Christ is God and he was revealed in the flesh. God did not simply come as a spirit. He came as God in human flesh. God wrapped flesh around his person. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the main truth that the church ought to bear witness to is that the Lord Jesus is God revealed in the flesh. We are to bear witness to his person and to his work. He is revealed in the flesh in his virgin birth, but also during his sinless life, seen in his substitutionary death, and ultimately in his victorious resurrection. But not only is he revealed in the flesh, we also learn that he was vindicated in the spirit. Was Christ God in the flesh? Yes, he was, as he was vindicated by the spirit. Now, you know, the word vindicated means endorsed. The Holy Spirit, as God the Father did, put the stamp of approval that Jesus Christ is no ordinary man, but that he is Lord. 
Though some of the Jewish people in his day rejected him, for he came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, and many received him because he was vindicated in the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit broke through the hardness of heart of that day. He authenticated the Lord Jesus as the second member of the Trinity. And how did he accomplish, accomplish that? Well, among other things, by the miracles that he did. The sick that the Lord Jesus healed. The dead that he raised. The blind that he gave sight to. The deaf whose ears he unstopped. His dominion over the demonic realm. And on occasion, when we saw his flashes of, of, of omniscience and omnipotency. And ultimately, when by the Spirit of God, he raised him from the dead. And it forced people to stop in their steps and say, you know, this is no ordinary human being. This is God in human flesh. And if you deny it, you are denying a basic affirmation of truth that is not only affirmed in the Scripture, it is affirmed in human history, for the resurrection is one of the best established facts of history. And if you deny that Jesus is Lord, you are denying the plain truth that is available for anyone to examine. Those Pharisees sent the temple guard on one occasion to arrest the Lord Jesus. They expected them to bring the Lord Jesus back, but they came back empty-handed because all they did was hear Jesus speak by the Spirit, and they said, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. He was vindicated that he was God in the flesh because he was endorsed by the Holy Spirit. The early church revealed this truth, that he was God in flesh, vindicated in the Spirit. But notice, thirdly, they sang that Christ was beheld by angels. Angels are seen throughout the life of Christ, watching and serving our Lord. They're there seen to his needs at his birth. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and revealed to her of a unique supernatural conception that had taken place in her womb by the Holy Spirit. Another angel saw to him as an unnamed angel came to Joseph and revealed that the, the conception was supernatural. Then a whole host of angels came and announced to people of all peoples to shepherds of the birth of Messiah. We see angels throughout his earthly life. They protected him when that evil man Herod, that fox, sought to take the Lord Jesus and have him murdered. And so they warned the parents to flee to Egypt. They ministered to him immediately after his temptation. And then there in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he sweat drops of blood, considering the wrath of God and the broken fellowship that he would know for the first time in all of eternity, an angel, the Bible says, came and strengthened him. We also learn that there in Gethsemane, all of the battalions of heaven stood ready to defend our Lord and to come to his aid to squash this group of rebels who are about to crucify him. And then we see, because in the plan of God, it was ordained, preordained before the foundations of the world. The Bible says that he might die, but we see angels again at his resurrection. As the angel first came and rolled away the stone, 
Not to let him out, but to show that the tomb was empty. And then two angels specifically announced the resurrected Lord. He is not here. He is risen. And angels once again beheld him as he ascended back into heaven. And right now in heaven, the Bible teaches that all of the angels of God worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, when he comes back again, he will be seen and beheld by angels, for they will accompany the Lord Jesus as they come to help him execute wrath on those who do not believe. The supernatural appearance of angels was the Father's way of saying, this is no ordinary person. This is God in human flesh. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, beheld by angels, but notice, proclaimed among the nations. Christ was proclaimed among nations. They did it then, and we do it today as we bring the gospel in obedience to Christ's great commission to the whole world. The early church knew it, they believed it, and they did everything in their power to proclaim it. That was their mission, and their mission made its way right into their hymns, and that is our mission. We are to proclaim this gospel to anyone and everyone who will listen. And because they faithfully proclaim Christ, for no one can become a Christian until they hear the message, but because it was heard, notice Christ was believed on in the world. The result of their preaching, as a result of all gospel preaching, is that some will believe. Jesus described four soils, but one soil represents good soil, where a man or a woman or a boy or a girl responds to the wooing and loving of the Holy Spirit as he opens up the truth of the gospel and they believe in a good heart and give evidence of it. Men embrace Christ today as Lord and Savior. And finally, we learn in this great confession, Christ was taken up in glory. At the ascension... He physically, literally left the earth. And right now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And we learn in the book of Acts chapter 1 that his ascension, in many ways, foreshadows that final vindication when he will come again in the exact same way in glory and in great power. Look, these truths were a reverent hymn that represented the great doctrines of the early church that we need to be attuned to in our common confession. This hymn represents the ground, the buttress, the support of what we are to stand for, that we are to defend. But it also pictures what we are to hold up, that men may see it, admire it, and believe in it. But unfortunately, so many churches today are so far away from this book that they are inventing their own message and not the message of God. We are not to tell people what they want to hear. We are to tell them what God has revealed. And the only way that we can effectively minister in these days is to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ, the hero and central focus of the entire Bible. If we are to impact people in these godless last days, we must be attuned to the church's conduct. We must be, uh, or to the confession of the church. We must be awake to the church's conduct. Finally, we must be alert to the church's concern. Notice here in chapter 4, he begins with an immediate and stark contrast. He moves from what he calls in verse 16, from the mystery of godliness, to what he's going to reveal here in verse 1 as doctrines 
of demons. Look at verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, he set up a contrast with this very strong adversative, this word but. And he is warning us that the apostates teach an entirely different confession of faith. These false teachers promote a different doctrine, and with it comes a different lifestyle. But because the church is the pillar and the support of the truth, we need to know about these people, lest we be caught off guard. So we need to pay close attention to God's counsel today. Now, first, he tells me that apostasy is predicted by the Spirit. If we're to be alert to the concern that God would have us to recognize, we need to first understand that apostasy is nothing new. It was predicted by the Spirit. Now, Paul informs us that what he is about to convey is a prophecy that came directly by the Holy Spirit. Question, when did the Holy Spirit specifically give this prophecy? Well, in all actuality, we're not told precisely when. It's not the time of the prophecy that is so important as much as it is the fact of the prophecy. It's very possible that he's speaking to the time when our Lord, by the Holy Spirit, as he gave that Olivet Discourse, when he predicted this would happen. Jesus said, false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. He's speaking of those days, if you look at it contextually, right before his second coming. He said this would happen, and he told us, behold, I've told you in advance. Or it's very possible that Paul is referring to that prediction that the Holy Spirit gave him when he spoke to the Ephesian elders a few years earlier. It's recorded in Acts 20. He said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Or it's just as possible, since he uses a present tense there, that as he is penning this verse of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit is inspiring him at that moment to give this prophecy. In either case, the prophecy is, and that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Now understand that the term latter times is not simply limited to those days right before Christ comes back. We know that because in Acts 2, after Peter gives that great sermon on the day of Pentecost and men are converted, and there's a supernatural display of what happens and people ask for an explanation, he said this is precisely what God said by the prophet Joel would happen in the last days. And of course, he carries that prophecy in Acts 2 all the way through the second coming of Christ, but beginning on the day of Pentecost. Likewise, the writer of the Hebrews says that in these last days, God has spoken by His Son. So on the one hand, the term last days is used to speak to the entire church age, the whole inter-advent period. And so in a very real way, this had application for Timothy in, our, in his day. And he's already dealing with it, as we saw in the first chapter. But the Bible also reminds us that as we move into the last of the last days, to those days before Christ's return, that apostasy will grow, it will increase, and it will come to a head after their church is raptured. Jesus told us of this 
when he spoke of his second coming in those days before it that he likened to the days of Noah. He said, and at that time, many will fall away. They'll apostatize. And they will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Likewise, Paul told the church at Thessalonica, some of them thought we've missed the rapture. Somebody, either by uh, a false letter, others by a false prophecy, said, you missed it. You're here for the great tribulation. Paul said, absolutely impossible. You could not have missed the rapture. Let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. There is coming a day after the rapture of the church where there will be a large-scale renouncing of Christianity and this world, for the most part, will give their allegiance to the Antichrist. And I believe in our day, the stage is being set. In my short lifetime, we have seen, not just in our nation, but across the world, Christian groups that were once orthodox institutions and denominations that are now renouncing the basic truths of the Scripture. And I believe what is happening is God is setting the stage when that day comes and Antichrist is revealed. And in a wholesale way, the nominal Christians of this world will renounce Christ and give allegiance to a false doctrine. And so we have people who no longer live by the principles of Scripture. They proclaim a different message, a different one than the one they once held to be true. And so while the church throughout all of its history has been faced with doctrinal controversy, confusion, and conflict between truth and heresy, the battle in our day is raging like it never has. If you've studied church history even a little bit, you will see that we are seeing before our eyes something that is very unique that God spoke of. And the Spirit expressly declared a long time ago that it would happen. But in addition to the fact that apostasy was predicted by the Spirit, I want you to notice here beginning in verse 2, apostasy is described by Paul. Paul gives us four ways in which we can recognize false teachers and false doctrine in the paragraph here that follows. First, he teaches us that these false teachers are energized by Satan. He calls their teaching, notice, doctrines of demons. Now, there's a reference to the Spirit twice in this verse. One with a capital S. You see it there? It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And then with a small s. And of course, that's a reference to demonic spirits. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, these false teachers who are alive and will be very much heard in the last days, it's not original with them. These false teachers haven't thought it all up on their own. Behind these false teachers is the devil and demonic forces. And so the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, warns us of unclean spirits that will come upon the world, especially in the last days. Now, we tend to think of Satan and his demons primarily engaged in enticing people to sin. But we must never forget that not only is Satan a tempter, he is a liar. He as much deceives people in the air as he entices people into sin. And so on the one hand, there is the mystery of godliness 
that Paul speaks of in these verses. And then there is the mystery of lawlessness that he writes to the church in Thessalonica about that is rooted in demonic spirits. I've often asked myself the question, how is it that intelligent, thinking people, educated people, can reject the Bible and swallow some of the fantastic teachings of these non-nominal Christian churches in our day and many of the cults. I mean, how, is, how can a thinking person become a Christian scientist? How can a thinking person become a member of the Church of the Latter-day Saints? How can a person believe and think and ascribe to such nonsense? Or how could even millions of people embrace the teachings of Muhammad? How could thinking people accept papal infallibility or the assumption of marrying to heaven? And how could nominal Protestants believe and reject the deity of Jesus Christ for the simple reason that behind false teachers are demonic spirits? Satan is the great imitator, and he has his own ministers and doctrines, and he seeks to deceive people through them and lead them astray. So Paul will tell the Corinthians, in whose case? The God, it's a small g there, he's speaking to the devil. The God of this world, the one who has temporary authority because Adam lost it through his disobedience, but Christ will regain it fully at his second coming. In whose case? The God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The devil has his doctrine, and the devil has his servants, because he does not usually directly solicit people. He works through a false preacher. Paul, again, will tell the Corinthians, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Not only are there false teachers energized by the devil, but secondly, a mark of apostasy is they lead people astray. Look again at the verse. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Their goal is to seduce people to part from the faith. Now the word fall away, it's a verb here. The noun is apostasia. We get our word apostasy directly from the Greek. And it refers to a willful turning away from the truth. And when Paul refers to these who fell away from the faith, obviously he's not describing a true Christian who was saved and then lost it. Because a true Christian cannot fall away from the faith. But there are many people today who think they are Christians but they are only nominal Christians. And such people he is addressing. Now, the faith here, when you see it accompanied by the article the, he's not just speaking of faith, that is your personal faith, as if you lost your salvation. He's describing of those who depart from the faith. The articular use in the New Testament, as written in Jude's epistle, refers to that body of truth delivered once and for all by the apostles to the church. He's speaking of those who turn away from this body of truth we call the Bible. He's not describing a true believer, but someone who's been exposed to the truth of Christianity, but who never willfully in their heart embraced it. Nominal Christians. Hey, I want to tell you, it's a dangerous thing to sit in a church like this and to hear the truth preached and not to embrace it. 
because your unwillingness to embrace it actually sets you up for demonic activity. John spoke of it. He said, children, it is the last hour. You know, all of the New Testament writers spoke with a sense of imminency that Christ could come at any moment, that they were in the last hour because they recognized prophetically nothing had to be accomplished for Jesus Christ to come again. He could come and catch up his church at any moment. Now, there's all kinds of prophecy that must be fulfilled for the second coming to take place. But the rapture happens before the second coming. And any remaining doctrine that will be left will be fulfilled in those seven years that will follow. But before our own eyes, we are seeing scores of prophecy, if you know your Bible, being fulfilled that reminds us that we are in that late part of the last hour. But he writes here in the first century, children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, that is that one world leader who is going to capture the world's attentions and allegiance. Even now, many false Christs, many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know it's the last hour. God said it would happen in the last days. They went out from us, these false teachers, but they were not really of us. They weren't true Christians. For if they had been of us, converted, they would have remained with us. Because you see, perseverance is a mark of conversion. You're not saved by perseverance, but those who are saved will persevere. They would have remained with us, but they went out so that it might be shown that they all are not of us. 1 John 2.19 is teaching you cannot lose it. And if you lost it, salvation, you never had it to begin with. But not only are these false teachers energized by the devil, leading people away from the doctrine of truth we call the Bible, we also learn one of their marks is they are hypocrites. Jesus said, so then you will know them by their fruits. Among other things, false teachers say one thing, they do another. Their behavior is hypocritical, sometimes on an experiential level, other times on an on a, a intellectual level. That is, they know what the truth is. God's Spirit has pierced their heart. And they know it to be true, but they deny it anyway. And they tell their disciples they ought to do the same. And so Paul says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. The devil works by the means of hypocrisy of liars. Now, a true man of God is a man of honesty and integrity, and he practices what he preaches. It doesn't mean that he's perfect, but as a way of life, he has a good and clear conscience. But these people, the Bible says, are seared. The Greek word is keteriazo. We get our word cauterized directly from it. They are cauterized. They're seared as with a red-hot burning iron. Just as a person's flesh or an animal's flesh can be branded or seared so that it is totally unresponsive and unfeeling, so a person's conscience can become deaded. And when a man denies with his life what he professes with his lips, his conscience just becomes a little bit more dead. Jesus made it very clear that not religious talk, not even performing great miracles is what authenticates you as a Christian, but obedience as a way of life. A mark that you've been born again and secured for heaven is that you will obey God. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did miracles in your name. We preached this in your name. I never knew you. Elsewhere, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? 
And these people who are led astray by these false teachers first compromise what they know to be right in their personal life. They turn a deaf ear to their conscience. They refuse to listen typically to the moral demands of God. And instead of repenting, they persist in their rebellion and they kick their consciences to death so they can no longer hear. And when that happens, a person becomes easy prey to deceitful spirits. To listen again to today's study, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program 1TM9, Effective Ministry in the Last Days. You can also listen to it online at searchthescriptures.org or if you have an Apple or Android device, you can download the Search the Scriptures app. For Apple devices, visit the iTunes App Store and for Androids, go to the Marketplace and look up Search the Scriptures app. These apps, along with the website downloads, are all free. But in order to continue providing them, along with our daily programming, a gift of any amount would go a long way toward meeting our goals. If you can help, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 or make a secure donation online at searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our study in the book of 1 Timothy. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music> 